This talk is supported by SmallPDF, the successful Swiss scale-up making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, a mission made possible with their 90-plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast-growing Swiss scale-up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply. What happens over time is that, I guess in particular as the CEO, your role gets compressed more and more around culture, the, the vision, which is also closely interlinked and kind of capital in many ways. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Kai, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. You're the co-founder and CEO at Oviva, an app which provides personalized dietary advice and also individual support for targeted dietary changes. That's a, yeah, a very important topic that we're going to talk about. And before we do so, I want to start with your personal background. You actually got your PhD in physical chemistry from the ETH, and then you went on to work for McKinsey for four years before you actually started your own company. What was that didn't click with you with the corporate world? Was there something that you realized, that's just not the right setup for me? I, I greatly enjoyed uh, the time in the corporate setup, I guess. Um, I, I learned a lot coming out of a, a fully academic background. So a PhD at ETH, you, you don't learn many social skills. You don't really learn to communicate very well. Um, and uh, McKinsey certainly gave me a, a whole other training in that area. And that's um, something I'm always very thankful for. I also got my wife from there too. So I met, got to know her there. So I took a lot along from them and, uh, and also a great network. Uh, it, it didn't really suit me for the long term, mainly because I, I feel like it's almost like an alternative reality. You get to work on really important problems mm -hmm. of 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 big companies that are moving, you know, lots of resources and are working on important topics. So it is fulfilling and impactful in many ways, but you never get to own what you're doing in the end, and um, uh, which means that you. You don't really have to work and, and, and live and see the feedback cycles on what you're actually doing. And I didn't appreciate that very much. Is that also a bit frustrating to a certain degree? Because you put in all the work, the energy, but then it's not your own company in the end? Absolutely. Um, it, you could see it as frustrating. So probably frustrating doesn't 100% fit it, right? I think it's, very, it's a very privileged position, again, that you can see and do all those things with the companies, but I think like you're you're missing a, a very integral part of having impact, right? And not owning something to the end and just giving recommendations on how one could think about things and how one can go about things just lacks like probably 80% of, of what's needed uh, to, to actually make that impact real, right? And I think uh, stopping with the slide deck just didn't do it for me, so. And you actually left McKinsey twice. You told me in our prep call, to pursue your entrepreneurial career, but then in between you also went back. So how did that go back and forth between McKinsey and your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, so the first time was for a, um, uh, an idea of a friend of mine. Um, 
And uh, it was for a, a short time, it was three months actually, where I just took a, a sabbatical, I guess, from McKinsey. Um, and they were very open and friendly about that, very supportive of it. Um, but it wasn't something that took off and it wasn't really something I think that spoke to me integrally. I just really wanted to do something myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that it's, uh, you know, it was just a, a bug that I, that I had. And then I saw how hard it was. Um, so I think that that just kind of made me realize and how hard it was also for something that I think I wasn't really in it with my whole heart. Um, so I went back there for the first time. The second time I left to join Groupon, which at the time was the fastest growing company ever, ever. Um, uh, so I joined them right before they announced their IPO up until the point where they IPO'd. Um, and I really joined because it was the fastest growing company ever. And that absolutely fascinated me to see something changing things so quickly um, and trying to understand a little bit more about what that was about and how that was possible. Um, and there I really left McKinsey, so I quit. I had no intentions of coming back at that point of time. Um, and again, it was, a, it was a really great experience for me. Um, I Beforehand, you know, I came from like an academic background, you know, PhD in, in physics. Then I spent some time at McKinsey. With McKinsey, I mainly worked on corporate finance, so deals and transaction stuff. Um, understanding what's you know what, what works financially in these kind of companies and what doesn't and um, and with uh, Groupon I was mainly a commercial sales function so I got to lead a sales team across Germany Austria and Switzerland um, which was really a privilege because I got to know something completely different and really it was then truly you know hitting the street and and uh, closing deals and um, you know driving revenues in a very very direct fashion they were pushing it on all cylinders possible to grow even faster, right? And uh, in particular, driven just around the dynamics, around the IPO at that point of time, um, it, um, it it wasn't like a great environment to be in, to be in many ways, because they it was ruthless towards, I guess, the people, but also even the customer, right? It wasn't really thinking longer term. Uh, it was all about that moment of the IPO and. Even if you think about an IPO, a lot of that is just about also fulfilling promises you make in that IPO because otherwise your value would deteriorate very, very quickly. So it was a very short-term oriented place and that also showed itself in how the, after the IPO where they IPO'd for about a 20 billion peak valuation, um, they crashed down to a fraction of that within a very short period of time and, and never really recovered again because um, they just were not oriented for the long term. and. Uh, didn't think about their customers, didn't think about their employees very well. So I left very quickly after the IPO. But it was a great experience as well. So this really shaped you. There were so many learnings along the journey there. But one thing you still had in you, right? You wanted to start your own company. And then, so you did in 2014 when you started Oviva together with two co-founders. First of all, what was first, the diet problem or really the wish to start your own company? So I think the wish to start my own company was met with an idea that's how I describe it. So my background for, for healthcare, right, and, and I haven't really spoken about that so much, is that when I was, when I was studying, I, I, had, uh, I had cancer, which luckily could be very well treated. Um, but I just found so much more purpose in, in doing healthcare topics after that. So our, in my master's studies, my PhD, it was already quite related to that. Uh, with McKinsey, I mainly worked in medtech and pharma, so the healthcare industry. And um, I really wanted to start something, do my own company in that space of of you know, of, of an industry, but also where you help people live healthier and happier lives. Um, and um, my background personally just is in technology, right? I was programming MRI scanners, so radiology devices and 
did patents and publications and those kind of things. Um, and that's just my strength. That's what I, I know, you know more about. And kind of bringing those two things together was really important to me in starting something. And, and the idea really came from someone else. So one of our co-founders, a medical doctor, who, who had um, a, a dietitian in his, in his practice, in his, in his GP clinic. Um, and he just saw how the dietitian who was on site, who was supposed to help these patients change their lifestyle and behaviors, wasn't really reaching those patients. So it, he, the, the dietitian would probably see the patients for one or two sessions after the, he sent them to her. And um, that just is not enough to make changes stick, right? So in changing people's behaviors, you usually need a, a prolonged period of time to make those, those, those new habits um, stick and... and um, uh, be maintained over the long term and um, if you only see that that therapist once or twice typically not much is taken along from that and you revert to your old behaviors very quickly but he also saw them constantly on their phones and he thought that that would be a much better place to reach them um, in particular because you know dietetic advice um, counseling is is purely information based or communication based you don't need any physical interactions you don't have to draw blood from the patient as or or you know do a physical exam as a lot of medicine requires. Um, so that was just an area that just offered itself to digitization and delivering remotely much much better than many other areas. It was about time that somebody would tackle that issue, right, and digitize it. Where do you actually meet your co-founders, Manuel and Mark? How did you then also become the founding team of Oviva? Yeah, so I met Manuel at the first startup that, that I mentioned. So he was uh, responsible for all the technical aspects of that then. And um, I met Mark at McKinsey. He was my intern there for a couple months. Uh, he's evolved quite a bit since then. <laughs> Fantastic. And how do you split the roles uh, across each other? You know, do you have a very clear role split? So it's very natural what talents and roles you bring to the table or how does that work? Well, it's something that's continuously evolved over the years. I mean, we're now uh, over 600 people in the company. Um, we have just the, the exec team is, is 10 people. Um, so it's, um, it, it evolved on the one hand just due to how roles, how we evolved into roles, the, the requirements of the business, um, and continues to change all the time. I mean, I think my role initially um, was kind of, you know, just do everything to make things work somehow and, and happen, you know, down to, you know, organizing that the, the kitchen has coffee stocked and uh, there's toilet paper in the bathroom and uh, and that, that certainly has evolved since then, right? And, and what happens over time is that, I guess in particular as the CEO, your, your role gets compressed more and more around um, culture, the, the vision, communicating the vision, which is also closely interlinked and capital in many ways, just making sure that you do have the funds to continue um, and those are used relatively well. Um, and, and that's certainly at the, at the core of that role. And then there's you know, different nuances. In my case, I particularly enjoy the commercial side of things. So I, I do uh, lots of new deal development and partner uh, interactions, which is just something that um, I just personally enjoy a lot because I feel at that moment you're really building something and something's happening. Um, and, uh, and I very much leave other aspects to, to other people. You need to delegate and you need to be able to build trustful relationships with them for that to work. Right. Let's also talk about the problem that you actually solve. So you offer both, you offer nutritional coaching, but also the nutrition tracking app. Let's first talk about the coaching part. You have qualified dietitians, 
maybe to give people a bit of a, a more understanding, what does qualified mean? What does that differentiate them in, in what way from non-qualified or non-certified dietitians? So, I mean, first off, it's probably important to say that the both things are really integrated and the integrated sure. solution is what it's about. And, and yes, it's based off of these certified dietitians. Um, and the difference to, I guess, nutritionists, which is the other category that one often knows, is that it's just a, there's higher formal requirements to it. So typically you need at least a bachelor degree. It differs a little bit by country, but typically it's a bachelor degree plus a couple of years of clinical training under someone who's experienced as a dietitian. And then what that qualifies you to do is then to build health insurance actually for treating medically ill patients and getting that reimbursed also by your health insurance. So the Grundversicherung here in, in, in Switzerland, right, right, that they would pay for it. And the contrast to that is like nutritionist is can be a very simple course, right? Maybe just a couple of weeks, of course, and it's not a protected title. So anybody can kind of call themselves that. And anybody could sell you advice a little bit on how to change your nutrition. And, and many people do. And it's a very confusing space because of that. There's there's so many um, new theories that come up and and advice and um, you know, gurus, I guess, that... that, that uh, find their role in that. And, and we're very firmly based in, in where there's strong evidence around that and um, where there's medical proof that it, um, that it works well. But that's also a complicated thing in nutrition as well. Exactly. But I also guess that's the only part that the health insurance would cover, right? Only the dietitian part. Yes. They only cover the dietitian part typically. Um, and only also once the patient actually has a disease. So the doctor has to has to diagnose the patient mm -hmm. and in essence you know confirm to the to the to the health system or to the insurer that the patient has that disease and only then it's usually paid for right now let's also talk about the app so how can the app actually help me eat better sure so we started off more or less just as a communication tool a communication tool between the dietitian and the patient so you can think of kind of a whatsapp type type configuration. So there's a chat where it goes back and forth between the therapist and the, and the patient. There's group chats. Uh, you can do video calls with it. Um, and then with time, we just built many more things around that. So the first thing was really around logging everything that's important around your lifestyle. So we use pictures of your food, which now also you know are interpreted by machine learning algorithms, and, and it kind of sees to a certain degree and certain yeah, That's one big part, right? You don't want to type in all the details. You yeah. just don't do that. No, no, that's, that doesn't stick well. That's right. Um, and if you just have to make a picture, it's just two clicks. And what also the picture does, is it just makes you very aware of what you're actually eating the whole time if you do have a log that you're doing for it. So a big part of it is just simply helping that patient stick with that awareness and making that as simple as possible with pictures is essential. Um, but we also track all sorts of other things around the diet um, or Around, around lifestyle and diet. Um, so for instance, you can connect your step counter in your phone or an external device, your weight scale. Um, you can log your mood, you know, your stool, all those kind of things uh, that's relevant for that. And that's tracked and logged for the patient, but also transferred over to the healthcare professionals so that they have that information to base it off of. And then on top of that, there's a lot of content um, that just guides the patient through their journey. So we have specific content to what the patient's needs are and what they're willing to change. So for instance, it's for somebody who has type 2 diabetes, there's an educational platform around what it means to have type 2 diabetes, but then also around the things that they're willing to potentially change. So for instance, if they want to have a healthier breakfast, they'll have information around you know, what makes up a healthy breakfast, You know, for instance, that there's fibers in that, what, what, where fibers are found, why they're important, you know, those kind of things. And also recipes, for instance, that will then help them you know, change their diet, 
practically. And, and those things together with the therapist who, who supports you and personalizes those and, and motivates you to go through the therapy uh, makes quite an effective mix. In that regard, is the Oviva app designed for everyone or do you focus on specific diseases and, and conditions that one needs to bring to actually become a user? So it's it's really quite a broad and useful tool almost for everyone, um, but it's clearly focused around changing certain you know, c- certain populations and certain diseases, right? So we focus really on obese patients, so patients with a BMI above 30, and we focus on patients with, with type 2 diabetes, so and a few more conditions around that. So it's in particular around losing weight and changing your your diet, um, where um, education plays a role and motivation is also a key aspect in, in helping that patient change their behaviors for the long term, for the better. And how does your business model look like? Do you charge the patients? Do you charge the health insurances? Or do you also get a cut from the dietitians that offer the service or all of the above? <laughs> Uh, so we we always employ the the, the dietitians, um, and uh, beyond that, we always try our best to be reimbursed by the health insurer. So we don't really want to send the patient ever a bill, um, if in any way that's avoidable. We do have some patients who still want to self-pay because the insurance doesn't always continue to pay mm-hmm. as well. Um, but the, the the main model is really being reimbursed by the health insurer. Um, and not billing the patient for it, which makes it quite complicated because every country is very different right. um, in that regard. And that's something to, that's complicated to navigate and few companies manage to do. I want to talk about that in a second before we do also just to come back to the business model. You know, usually you want to get your clients, your users out of the app as fast as possible in a sustainable way. So then you sort of lose the clients to a certain degree. Isn't that a challenge or a jeopardy for your business model? Uh, so, no, not really, because the the conditions the patients suffer are chronic conditions, um, and behavior change is also something that that needs to be constantly updated if you wish towards the patient. On the one hand, their behaviors change, their their external environment changes, uh, their disease also changes them. So it's right. something you have to continuously do actually for the rest of their lives. Um, uh, the awareness for that is not always there. So the health system typically thinks of us as an intervention. Right. So as a as a you know, you send somebody to a, a dietitian or just like physiotherapy, right? You mm-hmm. send them there for, you know, six sessions and then they're fixed. And in some cases that actually does work out, but it's actually relatively rare. A patient still has to continue those, you know, those exercises and those changes themselves. And often they need to be updated because, you know, the the pain comes back, the the old lifestyle comes back. And um uh so we do try do um um, we, we are the partner of the patient for the rest of their lives, right? Um, they're not always actively with us, though. So some patients will 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 do six months with us and then drop off and come back twelve months later. Um, so it's a, maybe intermittent, if you wish, um, as a service. Got it. And you mentioned this complexity that you face. You know, the healthcare market is huge, but therefore also heavily regulated. You have many players in there, from patients to healthcare uh, providers to you know yourself as a, as an app. Basically, how do you navigate these challenging waters as a startup? Because that's an immense complexity that you have to deal with. It is. Um, I don't have a one-off. Uh single single recommendation on that. I think the first thing is really understanding in healthcare, in particular, like the roles and actually the regulation around it is absolutely essential. So someone who's experienced in that, at least as an advisor, I think is essential. 
Um, thinking you can actually work in healthcare without that is, I feel, impossible. Um, you can learn it, um, but but it is really quite complex, and every system is quite different in that. And um, so, trying to navigate multiple different systems is yet a much higher bar to reach. And then, you know, once you've once you've really understood the roles, it, it then comes back down, I think, to many of the typical startup principles, right? You really have to understand your unique value proposition. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to get to product market fit. Um, and then, you know, you have to get to profitability from there, right? With a couple steps in between. But it's uh, it, based in that foundation, I think you can make it. But it's not, it's not easy. Um, Is it also to a certain degree, it's a huge effort that you have to put into, you know, just understanding these regulations and everything, and that your previous professional background with McKinsey, but also your co-founders helped you to speed up that process. Would you say that this is a, an unfair advantage that you brought to the table? I guess so. Yeah. I mean, my, my personal background was I, I did work quite a bit in market access. So trying to get traditional healthcare products into the system mm-hmm. um, across Europe. Um, uh, and then a, a lot of it then is just really every market having somebody who gets really, really, really deep into that system and understands all the... The, the regulations, all the different stakeholders. Um, and um, maybe maybe there is something to share about the general stakeholders there. The way I think about healthcare a little bit is that there's many stakeholders who can block you, right? Typically, you just have to, you know, get the consumer really on your side and to really love you more than anything else. And in healthcare, that's really different, right? You have the patient, obviously, as the consumer of that, but then you also have the health insurer who typically pays for that. Mm-hmm. You have a doctor who refers the patient into it and also kind of advises them very closely and, and sets them on the course to many different things. And each one of those can completely block your access to the system, right? So if one of them is not happier and doesn't feel that what you're offering is an improvement to their own interests and their interests mm-hmm. are not aligned, right? One would hope that it's all about the patient and improving their health, but it, right. it is not. Um uh, you know, then you you just I don't think you have a chance, right? So you have to think about each one of those stakeholders and what they're getting from this, why they're benefiting from it. Can you give us two examples on how you show the benefits to the health insurance companies, but also to the doctors why they should refer their patients to you? Sure. Um, maybe let's start with the doctors. So I think the doctors um, sometimes get a bad rep, right? So first off, I think. Almost every doctor starts because they really want to help the patient. And that also is also the way we, we start talking to doctors. It is always first about how we help their patient improve their lifestyle and behaviors, mm-hmm. why this is medically well-based. There's lots of evidence around how this is helpful to the patient and maybe even more helpful to them than anything else that they could offer them. Um, that's also that's based on guidelines, right? So doctors are supposed to follow the guidelines for how they treat diseases and how we right. fit into that and how we're an important part of that. So that's how we always start with the doctors, right? That patient component of that. But then on top of that, most doctors are also small business owners, right? And one has to respect that, right? That what they do every day, you know, it, it isn't for free. They have costs associated with that. And it's just as it's not fair to expect a barista because he loves coffee to give you the coffee for free. It's not fair to expect that doctors spend their time and their efforts on things that are for free. So they have to see a profit and a, and a benefit from that. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a direct financial advantage. It can just make them more efficient in their day and how they can work with those patients or what patients they actually work with, what patients they access. But you have to think of them also as a small business owner and what their benefits are as that. Um, and those are those are how I would typically think about a doctor. Mm-hmm. And a health insurer is much more complex in many ways because you really have to understand the regulation around it. Um, so in Switzerland, there's kind of, 
two regimes that you can work in, right? There's the Grundversicherung, which is just extremely tightly regulated, right? And there you just have to fit into that regulation. And the role of the health insurer there is very much just understanding, are you compliant with that regulation? Do you fit into that part of the regulation, right? Are you really there? Um, or are you actually in the Zusatzversicherungsgeschäft, right? So the, the top-up insurance area. And if you are there, their role there more or less is just to pick, choose just to say this is a legally compliant bill. I will pay for this or not, right? And, yeah. and that is kind of their role in that sector. But then there's the top-up insurance area, which is very, very different. Their, their interests are mostly about marketing, right? They want to access new patients there. And what's really important is that these two pieces fit together because a lot of patients get their basic insurance and their top-up insurance from the same insurer. So, and the only place where the insurers actually really make money is really in the top-up insurance as well because they're very closely regulated also in terms of how much they can make in the in the basic insurance package. So if once you understand all those dynamics, you can start to understand what their motivations are. And then there's the strategies of the different insurers that you also have to understand. And some are, you know, we just want to be the low cost. So we try to deny all claims we maybe even have to pay just to somehow create a cost advantage on their and their basic insurance package. And then there's others who want to be like the you know a, a great consumer brand, right? So be appreciated by their by their by their you know by their insured patients. Um, and and once you understand those things and put that together, I think you can understand a little bit more about what you can do with that. Um, but but you know, that's just like the top level details that you have to start to understand to to play in that. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you're an entrepreneur looking to raise your first round and would like to learn more about the fundraising process, check out our free fundraising masterclass with Pascal Koenig and Sophie Lamparter, available on our website. With videos, text breakdowns, and lots of free resources, Pascal and Sophie take you through the entire fundraising journey in 10 exciting phases. Learn more at swisspreneur.org forward slash fundraising. In the end, it's all about putting the right incentives in, right? And helping all these players to come together and show you how you have benefits to their lives and their businesses. Yes. And you have to really think about all the different stakeholders together and cannot ignore one of them and say, like, I'm, you know, you have to offer something to each one of them, I think, um, beneficial. You also launched very powerful partnerships and collaborations, for example, with the National Health Services, NHS in, in the UK, but also with private insurance companies. How did deals, these deals happen? Was that like a tough negotiation or was it easier than expected because you were able to show them the benefits, why they should collaborate with you? I guess this is going to go even more into the complexities of, of healthcare. <laughs> so those two are just are, are very, very different, right? So the right. NHS in England is the um, nationalized, it's a health insurer, but also the provider in the UK. Um, and there... They think also very, very different than many other systems in the sense that they know that they will be paying from taxpayers' money for the patients until the end of their lives. Um, so there, it's very much around the health economics, right? So you have to offer, obviously, a patient benefit. They have to do better after your treatment. But that also has to work within a for a certain price, right? So they know, for instance, there's a so-called quality score, right? So what, how much a life, a quality-adjusted life of a patient is worth. And the UK is the only country that at least I know of that has agreed on that, right? What is a fair price for a year of your life? Well, but, but that kind of sets as a, as a top limit as to how much you can cost for what kind of health benefit you have. And the system really thinks a lot about that. But it thinks also differently at different levels. So if you look at the local level, it'll think differently about it than at the national level. So 
But then you have to then offer services within the, that kind of framework, right? So once you understand that. And then private health insurers think really quite differently, honestly, right? The most that they think about and they want to work with us is because we are preventative. So we prevent the patients, you know, at least in progressing their disease, right? So if they have type 2 diabetes, for instance, for in, that they, they don't get the kidney failure, mm -hmm. right? Which is a, a follow-on complication of type 2 diabetes. Um, but the private health insurer is very much like to think of us as or, or like to work with us because we are preventative and we make them more of a, of a partner to their their customers staying healthy um, and that's a position that they very much seek to take because that will also attract people that are oriented into healthy lifestyles so it's a good risk to take as a health insurer um, I hope we're not getting into the weeds of details here. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. I also wonder, once you actually have these partnerships up and running, you know, after a certain time, they want to ask for, you know, some metrics. How do you evaluate success? How do you do that? Because with the preventative, you know, measures, that's not always easy because nothing's happening. Then you cannot improve and measure how you got better, but you actually made it not happen. How do you measure this? So there's some core metrics that we always kind of measure also just for the patient benefit, which mm -hmm. is still has to be the overarching thing, I think, for any healthcare company. Um, so those are things in our case for um, just how many people start, how many people complete it, right? So are you hitting someone's interest? Are you keeping them engaged is really the first thing. But then it's things around weight loss, for instance, or for diabetes is HbA1c improvement. So it's kind of a key blood metric that you measure um, for how well the disease is under control. Um, and that's kind of the patient level benefits. And then for those health economic benefits that you that you meant, so, so how are you preventing future costs from happening? Um, you're right, a lot of that is indirect, right? So when you do, and sometimes we do this kind of a modeling and you use with a, you use a consultancy that does these things with experts in it, where they model out, you know, because you improve the lifestyle of the patient so and so much, what is the reduction in the expected number of doctor visits or hospital um, hospital visits they will need and what kind of savings there are. So that's kind of a, an indirect expected saving benefit. But then there are much more direct ones as well. So we, for instance, we do diabetes remission services where we help the patients really, really regain, improve that condition a lot. And with that, they can stop a lot of the medications. And in some systems, for instance, the UK, you target that specifically to very expensive patients on expensive medications. So these medications can cost five to 10,000 a year. And you'd specifically then go for those types of patients that are on expensive medications and you can stop that. And then you have a very direct benefit. You had a patient who was on a medication that was before and you stopped it and, and there's a direct health saving. Hopefully they also don't go to the hospital as much either, but that's an indirect one. And there's also a lot of skepticism about these indirect health savings in the market, even though you don't have anything better to do. Because as you said, it's kind of challenging to measure it one-to-one -one directly. He did not go to the hospital. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so. But uh, you're well set up to manage these challenges. Yeah. I also want to talk about the internal challenges. So now we talked about you know the regulations and how to get a foot in the door in, in that heavily regulated market. But also you had to manage some growth challenges along the way. You mentioned 600 employees. Your biggest office is now in, in the UK. How do you hire and find and attract the right talent? That's probably one of the key challenges for you right now. Yeah, I think um, first thing is the mission. We are very mission driven, right? It is about you know helping one million patients uh, live healthier and happier lives by 2025. Um, and uh, luckily, that's also just a very tangible 
true, honest mission, right? And it's very direct and you can see it every day, right? We get tons of feedbacks from our patients every single day. So kind of having something that is purposeful and impactful um, is great, right? I, you know, I think that's, that inspires everyone who, who wants to work for you and, and, and can attract talent from people who have, I'd say, a less direct mission, right? Something that... Um, and then on top of that, I think it's just building a great culture in the team. And there's many different ways of thinking about that. I think one of the most foundational thing around that is is really a trustful culture, right? And and building trust within mostly the people you work directly with. That's where, where trust matters or, or happens the most, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and just thinking about that in every single interaction, right? Because you you kind of pay in and you take out of that account with every interaction you do with people. And um, it really is the foundation to I think that that keeps things working well, right? In a in a room where there's or whatever in a in any setting where there's trust, things work well. I think where it's gone, it, everything becomes complicated, right? and you talk about all the details that just can't be sorted out, and everything becomes inefficient and ineffective. And along that growth that you encounter and still encounter, what role does fundraising play for you? Well, it, it keeps the engine running, right? And uh, it enables us to have impact, right? So me, this is really why I, I love doing what I'm doing is because I can have great impact and funding is is a way to reach that. And in our space as well, just due to, I guess, startup costs and the regulation and the complexity of that, you know, there would have been no way that we would have made that without, at least I wouldn't have seen a way to have made that without a lot of additional financing that you just cannot bootstrap you know, from without. Um, so that's why it's essential. And now we're clearly more in the growth stage and this allows us to reach more patients faster because we have that that backing. And the exciting thing about our space and I think, you know, health tech or digital tech, digital uh, health in general is that, you know, as you've seen in many other platforms is that if you've managed to reach a certain scale, um, uh, it, there's this flywheel that keeps on going. So for us, there's a flywheel around that every patient we additionally see, we learn more about that patient and we can build a yet better technology for it. So for instance, it's either more automated, so we have less costs to, to reach those results, or we get better results because of the technology. And therefore, you know, we're more effective and we get more patients because of that, right? And you have that flywheel that keeps on going. And once that's been going through, you know, hundreds of thousands of patients and you've built that technology that's that's you know greatly improved and based on actual real needs from hundreds of thousands of patients and puts machine learning data into that you know, that's something that accelerates and becomes you know a very big barrier to access for others so what you assume what many investors assume is that there's not going to be so many players in this space that are, will will you know create a have significant market share right there'll be few winners um and that's why we also have access to venture capital because we are the clearly leading player in our space in europe um, and can continue to build that out with also a lot of additional money we don't earn ourselves at this moment. Yeah, you raised a total of 120 million so far. How does the collaboration, but also the support from your investors, look like beyond the pure financial investment? Uh, so we've regular interactions. Um, uh, probably, you know, depending on the investor, it's we have five VCs now that are invested in us. So. I talk to one probably every week, roughly, um, and I've, we have board meetings roughly every two me- two two months, um, and uh, they're really important around a range of things. I think the the deepest part is really the financing side of the business, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's more than you know just giving us money once. It's much more about thinking about what you have to do next to reach the next stage. Um, 
connecting us with other investors that are then suited to that next stage. Um, and um, uh, But then beyond that, they do have a lot of additional services. So one thing that I really appreciate is, is around just the, the people side of the business um, and how you have to think about roles and the next role you have to add in and how your role changes because of that. So we also have someone, an expert from, from the marketing side. Right? So those are just resources that we just didn't have ourselves. And, and then you can pull from really people that have great expertise and network in that area and, and you can learn from and um, don't have to build everything yourself. Great. There's another point that I wanted to discuss with you is the user acquisition part. So you mentioned before the different players that you interact with, basically. Do you also heavily focus on having the right, you know, ratio between patients and dietitians that you employ yourself? A bit like similar to the Uber model where they always focus like on the good ratio there. If that's the case, um, what, where do you focus on? What's your focus to then also grow the company in terms of users, but also the overall offering? Yeah. So it is uh, two-sided. Yes, we need both the demand and the supply, and we have to match the two. Um, and um, I mean, we the main way we access patients is we access them to their doctors, right? So we convince doctors um, and offer them a great value proposition why they should be sending their patients to us, right? Why our services are suited to them. Um, and then with that, you know, demand, right? Patient demand for those things, we do need to have then the therapist that also can 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 support those patients. And luckily, it's very reliable, right? There's so many of these patients, um, and our channels, uh, so our access to these patients is very, very steady, I guess, throughout the time, so that we know really quite reliably when that's going to be coming. Um, and then we have to, you know, create the supply for that demand and have to hire the therapist to fit to it. And over the years, we've we've digitized a lot of the care, so we don't need as many therapists to treat the patients, um, but we still need quite a few. So it's about 400 now that that work for us. Um, wow. to support our patients and and that ratio has improved but it's still it's still a significant amount of human care that's in every single the treatment of every patient but i guess that's also at the core right you put the humans at the center but you also get more efficient at the same time about the acquisition channels do you purely focus on the doctor's acquisition or do you also you know run online ads or anything of that sort to attract people to use and download your app so it's predominantly via the doctors um, in some countries. So for instance, Germany, we also have a consumer, direct-to-consumer marketing angle. Um, so it's, it, it can differ. But in the, in the most part, we are B2B2C. We convince the doctors to send us their right. patients. Yeah. And also a very personal question related to the growth challenges. You know, you have more employees, more money from investors, probably also more stuff going on, the need, the pressure to deliver do you also feel more pressure or more responsibility on a personal level? So it certainly has increased. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, especially when times are going hard, you do think about, you know, having so many employees around you um, that rely on us as an employer. Um, um, but um, also you have just so much more support around that, right? So the, the, the as you scale, it's a great privilege to work with people that are much, much better than you at all those different topics. And that has happened to me many times now um, where I pass something on that I've managed, you know, halfway well beforehand to somebody who actually really is competent in it. And that, you know, that makes that quite okay. I enjoy it a lot overall. So therefore, would you say that as you grow, it's crucial to have this 10 people management team that you mentioned at the beginning 
that you have this really rockstar management team to be able to handle that increasing pressure and responsibility? I think it's a huge trade-off in every single case. So first off, 10 people is probably not best practice. <laughs> I think generally one recommends less. That's just our situation and that we got into. Um, it works well for us, but... Um, uh, but I think it's absolutely essential that you that you bring on you know expert great managers. Um, we kind of live in an era where the CEOs aren't replaced, right? This is not the common the founder CEOs are are not replaced after the company is going quite well, um, which which used to be very different, right? So I think in the two thousands that was certainly the still very much the case, mm -hmm. um, but the the sentiment has changed. Maybe it'll change back again at some point. But it absolutely is essential that you bring on, you know, experienced leaders for all the areas that, that you have to pass on. Um, and um, but I think it, it is always kind of a good trade off between when you want somebody very experienced and when you want to give somebody young uh, who's energetic and driven and smart a new opportunity. And I think it has to always be kind of that trade off, because if you continuously bring in new external people for everything that's a, a great role, I think you greatly demotivate everyone. You you um, you don't give the, the people in your team like the perspectives that they should have anyway if they perform well. Yeah. Um, so you, you always have to balance those things. And I think in many cases, you know, young, driven, smart, can even be the better solution than someone who's experienced. But you can't do without the experience either, right? There's no solution, no. There's no substitute for experience when you need it. It's about the right mix in yes. that regard. And what are the, the key roles? I mean, 10 people, yeah, that is quite a lot for a management team, for an executive team. But what are the key, the key roles that you focus on there? What do you say? These are the absolute essential roles that every startup that wants to go big and become a scale-up, basically, needs to have. So maybe I'll try to answer that specifically for, for digital health. And I think there, when you when you think about this, you need somebody who, who first off, is has the medical clinical side in view, mm -hmm. right? So someone who can understand what the patient needs and what's what's the right treatment for them. Then you need the technology and product side. Um, so someone who will really build that technology internally, otherwise you're not really a digital or technology startup. Yeah. Uh, and then you need the commercial side. Uh, so those three things already, you know, that, that's kind of what we started off with, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think those are the essential roles to get started. And then as you scale... Um, I mean, th there's so many areas that you have to add to it, but I think one of the areas that we did not bring a lot along as founders is pr the product side, right? So we have the technical expertise, but we did not have the product expertise specifically, so we brought somebody new on for that. Um, and then, so people. And then another part that, you know, we just, we scale to multiple different countries, and because healthcare is so different in every country, we have a GM structure, so we have local country management, which are really strong, you know, and they're all on the executive team. Um... Uh, so that's, for us, another set of roles that are really, really essential. Yeah. And then finance. You can't forget finance. Of course. Yeah. Now, you mentioned before the vision. You want to help more than 1 million people to live a healthier and happier lives by 2025. Where are you currently on, on your path there to 2025? So cumulatively, uh, over our history, we've treated about 300,000 patients now. Um, right. But the goal now is on active patients that we are helping right now yeah. so there are under active treatment um so there were around sixty thousand current active patients um so still a ways to go but i think you have to set high goals it's a bold otherwise vision. you won't get anywhere near them right? exactly so. 
And in that regard, you also have previous IPO experience with Groupon. Is that something that you would consider for Oviva in the future to doing an IPO yourself? Um, that would be great. We'd greatly enjoy that if that could be possible. Or trade sale? So I think it's too early for us still. So IPO or trade sale. Um, I think some companies tried to IPO a little earlier or SPAC a little <laughs> earlier last year. And I think on average, one sees that that has not gone well at all. Um, and also, I think the markets are really bad right now. So uh, we're, we're not IPOing anytime very, very soon. Um, but it'll be a great thing to aspire to and do at some point. So open to the possibility, but it's not on the to-do list yet. So I think building for the IPO is the right smart thing to do, right? Because right. an IPO-able company is just simply a company that's based on yeah. good foundations, right? It's growing well and it's hopefully going to be profitable at least soon, right? That's kind of like the, the basic requirements. And it has a certain scale that's you know, significant. Uh, so I think that's the right thing to always aspire for, right? And, and, um, uh, and that's what we are too. And what are your priorities over the next 12 months? Like, what do you want to focus on with Oviva? What's, what's going to be next for you? So we, um, we mainly really want to get much better and deeper in our current countries. We've gone to several countries already. Uh, we want to focus on those. Uh, and one big way we want to get better is we want to broaden the care for our patients from, from you know, so far being quite focused around their, their nutrition, right? So their lifestyle and, and their eating behaviors. Um, and we want to broaden that also towards their, their mental health, right? So we cover some aspects of that already with those therapists, but now we're adding in psychotherapists uh, wow. to treat the patients. And, and what I think is really special about technology is really is how it can take, I say, good practices that are already proven in medicine already now. So in a, in a good obesity clinic, you, the patient will have a doctor who's specialized, but also a dietitian, psychotherapy, often physiotherapy as well. Right? Mm -hmm. Those things all play a big role for treating these patients in an integrated way. And that integrated care, right? so where these people work together on that patient and know what they're doing with that yeah. patient together, uh, is, is just really hard to do in today's medicine. Right? It only happens in specialist clinics. There's few of those things. Despite that, you know, obesity, type 2 diabetes is a is an epidemic, right? It's a, it's a mass phenomenon and only few people can then access that in, in the specialized clinics. And technology has this power to just easily coordinate between those, those, those disciplines so that you can deliver it really to everyone, right? So you can, you can take it um, uh, from the specialized to the, to the generalized uh, population. And I think that's something that we, we aspire to and, and can with the technology. So. And yeah, also, once you figure out the regulations, right, there are multiple additional services that you can build around that to make it even more valuable and help more people in the end. Yeah. Now, before we wrap up today's episode, we also have some rapid fire questions for you. So I either give you different options to choose from or a single question, and you have to answer in one sentence. Are you ready? I'm ready. Low fat or low carb? Um, high fat, high carb. <laughs> <laughs> Cheat days, yes or no? No. What is your favorite unhealthy food? Ice cream. Oh, that's a good one. Which flavor? Uh, vanilla and chocolate. In Both combinations, together, yeah. yes. Intermittent fasting, yes or no? Sometimes. What's intermittently. Hard? intermittently. <laughs> that's good. What's harder, building a great product or building a great team from your experience? Both are hard. And the last one for you, with the exception of diet, what impacts your health the most? Uh, balance, mental balance. Love that. 
Kai, thank you so much for coming on the show. All the best and lots of success with Oviva and whatever the future might bring for you. Thank you so much, Sylvan. It's a great pleasure being here. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.